our hope is immovable because Christ is immovable. Amen? I mean, that's where your promises are rooted, rooted in Him, on ourselves, not in this list that we're looking at in our ebbs and flows, uh, the times in which we pursue them with great vigor and great fervor, and the times when we fall flat on our face. And we're brought back to the reality that we must confess sin once again and pursue Christ and the truths once again. How gracious God is to us to just continually bring us back to the Word. That's the blessing of, of, of not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. It's the blessing of exposition that continually, week in and week out, we're brought back under the Word of God. It's brought to bear on our hearts. It reminds us. Just as Peter said, I'm writing to you. In Second Peter, I'm writing to you things that you already know. But as long as I'm alive, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to continue to write them to you and remind you of them because we need to be reminded. You need to be reminded of truth? Do you get it just one time and you, you know it's like taking an inoculation and you're good to go the rest of your life? I need to be reminded week in and week out. And so we're looking at this list in Romans 12 and we're seeing these guidelines that are like an x-ray of our hearts. And and uh hope you got to see uh, Don and Donna Updike this morning. I was thinking of him as I was giving the illustration of an x-ray and a, and a uh, radiology tech where it's it's our task to see what the... But the Word of God does, shines, uh, just, just pierces us to the core, exposes us all the way down to the joints and marrow, and then we get an opportunity to evaluate what we see. And all of the passages that we've looked up to this point can be in order in the church. You can have, you can have right leadership, you can have good plans, you can have members admonishing one another, we can have a theology of unity, but if we're not striving to fulfill these grace-grounded responsibilities, if our hearts aren't right, then we can miss the, the whole process. And Christ calls us not to present dead sacrifices, not to go to the temple and, and sacrifice animals. He, he calls us to lay down our own lives, which means to consecrate ourselves unto Him, give ourselves completely and holy to Him. And then, whenever that happens in salvation, then we're, we're His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which He has, which He's foreordained. So this list provides some attitudes and activities that help us look hard at, at how we're doing. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, and we're looking at verses 9, 10, and, and 11. Grace-grounded responsibilities that mark the Christian life. And, and the first one, the first responsibility is found in verse 9. Genuine love. Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy, abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. Love, that is not hypocritical, hates evil, hates what offends God and what hurts other, others, and it clings, it holds to what is good. Which rejoices in what is good, rejoices in the truth, as First Corinthians tells us. This word here about cling is. Have you ever heard the illustration in marriage that the two individuals that are that are bound together? The, the the Bible word that says cleave, you leave and you cleave is like gluing two pieces of construction paper together. And whenever you try to, have you ever tried to take two pieces of construction paper apart once they're glued together with Elmer's glue? It doesn't work real well. They rip and it leaves pieces on. On, on both colors, if you have two different colors. That's the idea of this word. You, you cling to what is good. You glue yourself to the truth. And that's what love does. It rejoices in, in truth. 
Secondly, we prefer one another, like a devoted family and like a deferring servant. Look at verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another. You, you try to take the lead in, in racing to the back seat, not to the front, as we joked today. My, my boys uh, didn't rebuke me or anything after I told stories all about them the, this morning. We, we got a kick out of talking, uh, talking about it at the, the dinner table. We're going to look at the third grace-grounded responsibility, and that is to fervently serve. Look at verse 12. He goes from the essence of the Christian life, which is love, the oil that causes all of the Christian life to work, the glue that holds it all together is, is love. Then it moves to, to how the body functions. We are to, we're to be devoted to one another. We are to defer to one another. And now he moves to our work, our serving in the body. And he says in verse 12, read, uh, in verse 11, sorry, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Each of these each of these verses have about three statements, two or three statements, and they all go together, and they all say the same thing. It's kind of like in the Proverbs, whenever you have, you, have, you have one sentence in Proverbs saying something and the next one following it, and it says the same thing just in a different way. It's like the trifecta that comes in in the Psalms. Here you kind of have this, this thing going on in, in the list. And Paul says not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Don't be slothful in zeal, fervent in the spirit, serve the Lord. That's the way the ESV puts it. A paraphrase, which is, which is not really a translation, it's a paraphrase of, of, of an easy way to, to say it. Almost, you might think of a paraphrase translation like a commentary. Paraphrase translation says, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Pretty good, actually. And he says here to be diligent, to be passionate, and then he tells us to serve as a, as a slave. After telling us to have family-like devotion toward one another and a deferring spirit, Paul turns to service. And he begins with an instruction to be diligent or not be, not be lazy. You guys can put the third point up there if you want to. There you go. He says, don't be slothful in zeal. It means not to be lagging in, in diligence. One said some people will do anything to be able to do nothing. You ever heard that before? People will go to great lengths. They'll do anything to be able to do nothing. I had a, I guess you might call him an acquaintance growing up, and I can still remember him. This was, this was ingrained in him from from his family life as an unsaved man, and I can remember him watching him token on a cigarette, and he says, you know, my goal in life is disability. I still remember him saying that. They, will, they, they long to be laid off in the coal mines, especially during hunting season, so they didn't have to work. Some people will do anything to be able to do, to do nothing. People go to great lengths to get out of work. And Paul says that that's not the way Christians should be. A personnel manager rejected a job applicant once because the firm was overstaffed. But the would-be employee persisted. The little bit of work I do won't even be noticed. You can hire me. That's the same way some Christians are in the church. You can't even tell they're here whenever it comes to work. Wow, that, 
kind of stings, doesn't it? And Paul says there's no room for laziness or sluggardly behavior in the Lord's work. Not only does it prevent the good that could be done, but it opens the door for evil to come in. You've heard the statement. Your mother may even repeated it to you. Idle hands is the devil's playground. Idle minds is the devil's playground. J.C. Ryle said, We must have our hands filled and our minds occupied with something or else imaginations will soon ferment and breed mischief. I love the way that some of those old guys used words, painted word pictures. It's true. If your hands aren't filled, your minds aren't occupied, your imaginations will ferment and breed mischief. You know, our default position as a human being is not good. Our default position is bad. And for a believer, we have a new nature. We're a new creature in Christ Jesus. We have the Spirit of God living in us. But, but even though we are new creatures, even though the Spirit of God lives in us, our unredeemed flesh is still so strong that it requires week in and week out we be under the Word of God in order to continue to go in the right direction. Have you ever tried just to coast? What happens whenever you coast? What happens if you don't mow your grass every week? Does it just remain the same, nice, neat, and beautiful the way it is? No. It grows, and it grows weeds. You have to have your hands filled and your minds occupied, and God intended man to work. And through our work, we each have an opportunity every day to make a difference and to fulfill purpose in in life. Peter T. Forsyth said, The first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. And that is true. If you turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14, there's a passage there that Paul gives about work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. Now, he's not just talking about work in the church there. He's talking about work in general. Listen to verse 6. It's a warning against idleness. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. It says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, not according to the tradition which which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, we weren't idle among you, we weren't lazy deadbeats among you. It's probably a really good way to translate that. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we not, might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we didn't have authority to do that, but to make ourselves an example of how you ought to follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither should he eat. Here the Apostle Paul is addressing a group of believers in the church who weren't living consistently with a biblical view of labor. And some in the congregation were refusing work. They were leading undisciplined lives. Because they were idle, their lives became disheveled and a mess. And and they were living off the rest of the, the congregation. And with all the excess time on their hands, they were falling into sin in their own lives. And they were also causing strife in the in the church. And what's even worse, quite possibly they were doing it in the name of Christ. Their attitude was, Jesus is coming. He's coming at any moment. So we need to do nothing. We need to wait. We need to 
We don't need to worry about earthly responsibilities. Working is secondary. It's, it's not important. And the Apostle Paul corrects them and gives us God's perspective on earthly labors. God made man to work. It's not a curse. But it's a blessing. The work that was given in the garden was prior to the, to the curse. It's been said there are three kinds of workers. Three kinds of workers. And you can, you can identify them whenever a piano has to be moved. The first kind gets behind and pushes. The second pulls and guides. And the third grabs the piano stool. Think about that. You can tell a lot about a group of people. Paul says, as believers, you're to grab the piano. <laughs> Be diligent, he says. Turn back over to Romans chapter 12. Not lagging in diligence. Be diligent. Secondly, he says, be, be passionate. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit. He next he gives the positive side of the coin. We're not to lag in diligence. We are to be fervent in the spirit. The word has the idea to to boil. It's to bubble. It's the it's the constant bubbling of a of a pot that just that just remains. Have you ever watched they say, you know, don't watch a don't watch a pot. Watch a pot will never boil. Well, if everyone, if one ever gets to boiling and you watch it, you can't ever tell where it's gonna, where it's gonna pop. And that's the way that a Christian is in their, in their service to the Lord. They're passionate. That's the way our hearts ought to be for service. Whatever we do, we do, whatever we do for the Lord, it's worthy of intensity. It's worthy of intensity. A sign in the store window said, no help wanted. Two men passed by and one said to the other, you should apply, you'd be great. <laughs> no help wanted. That should not be you. You should possess enthusiasm about your work. Paul says here with this idea of, of being fervent in spirit, not to let your spiritual fire burn down found an excellent illustration that talked about modern heat pumps. Modern heat pumps and furnaces uh, have taken the work out of keeping warm in the winter. You simply set the timer on the thermostat and the house is warm when you get up in the morning. It's true. But in the old days, it wasn't that way. I can remember growing up, making sure that we had enough wood in the house before you went to bed. I can remember going down to the to where the, where the coal mine would dump all of the leftover coal and fill up a truck bed of stuff that they couldn't sell but would still burn. And, and then inside of the house, it wasn't even a full fireplace. It was just kind of like an indention back in the wall, and there was a coal grate. And it was about that tall, and the coal was in the front of it, and the heat would, the heat would go up. It was hard work preparing just to make sure that you had enough heat at night, in the old days when you had a fire, it had to be carefully tended and wood or coal supplies were closely monitored. And if it was worked the way that it did in my house, whenever the pile got low, Dad said, get out there and get some wood in, boy. It was running out, could be, could be deadly in certain places. You know, Paul says it's the same is true for us spiritually when he says here, be fervent in spirit. 
Don't let your spiritual fire burn down. Spiritual, fa- spiritual passion is not something to be treated lightly or taken for granted. It's something that has to be closely monitored. And it'll grow cold if you fail to keep it supplied with fuel. Don't expect to be white, have white-hot passion for the Lord and fill your minds and your hearts with junk all week and only come to church once whenever there's an opportunity. Don't expect to be fired up for Christ and passionate about what Jesus wants you to do. It just doesn't work that way. You have to have fuel, and that fuel has to be there. Now, the Spirit of God will set it on fire and it will burn, won't it? But you have to have the fuel there in order for it to, to burn. And that fuel for a believer is the Word gathering of believers. Don't you get energy? Isn't your, isn't your fire stoked at times by being around other believers? It should be in prayer. You ever went in your prayer closet just down in the dumps and came back on cloud nine? Woody, have you ever done that? I know you've done that. We should not think our spiritual fire can, can be ignited as, as easily as a modern furnace. I mean, I think what Paul is reminding us here is that you must tend the spiritual fires of your heart, be fervent in spirit. And he's also warning us not to, not to think that our spiritual fire can be ignited as easily as a modern furnace. It's not just as simple as going over and turning up the dial. It's not just simple as, as growing cold and not being in the Word and, and not being in church and not serving and not doing anything and then just all of a sudden turning the dial and... It's all fine and dandy. If we do, we think that way, we risk losing our fervor for the Lord. Ask yourself the question, does God excite you? Does working for Him fire you up? If He doesn't, if God doesn't excite you, likely He won't won't excite anyone else. If your idea of following Christ looks more like growing mold than burning wood, you're not doing a very good job for the kingdom. (laughs) And you need to get along with somebody who is fired up and let them ignite you. A lot of it has to do with what you see, your perspective. Do you know, the perspective can be be changed in a moment, can it? When D.L. Moody was in London one time during one of his famous evangelistic tours, several British clergymen visited him. And they wanted to to know how and why this poorly educated American was so effective in winning throngs of people to Christ. Moody Moody took the three men to the window of his hotel room and asked each to take a turn looking out the window and telling him what he saw. And one by one, the three men described the people in the park below. And Woody, um, well, Woody probably would do this too, but Moody... (laughs) Moody looked out the window window with tears began to roll down his cheeks and said, what do you see, Mr. Moody? And he said, I see countless thousands of souls that will spend, that one day will spend eternity in hell if they don't find the Savior. Moody saw people differently than the average observer does. You need to see serving the Lord differently than the average person does. And because he saw eternal souls where other souling people strolling in the park, Moody approached life with a different agenda. And we may find for, for find times and for different reasons that we lack passion for the Lord's work, but there's no excuse to stay that way. Indifference or lack of commitment to Christ is unacceptable for a believer. He says, be diligent. 
He says, be passionate. And then he also says, serve as a slave. Look at how he ends this. In verse 1, he, he puts the, the main idea, uh, verse 9, he puts the main idea up front. Let love be without hypocrisy. And then he describes abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. In verse 11, he puts the, he puts the, the two descriptions up front and ends with the main idea. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, serving as a slave. The word that he uses is doulos, you've heard before, it's a bond slave. When you hear the word slave, you probably think of a very negative connotation. But he's not saying that the work to Christ is like sweatshop labor. It's like something you're forced to do. That's not what he's saying. To serve Jesus is one of the greatest privileges that a human being has. A slave in Paul's day chose to give, up his, to give his full devotion to his master and wouldn't leave if he even had the chance. That's what he's talking about. I mean, you've sung the song before. Um, I'm not returning to sin. I've paid my vow. There's nothing to go back to, is there? You tasted the world. Is there anything in the world? There's nothing in the world. Is there? I mean, those of you who have never tasted the accolades or the money or the power, I can promise you it is empty. And you just don't have to take my testimony. Go to the Word of God and read the book of Ecclesiastes and you'll figure out it's like trying to catch the wind. But if you grab a hold of Jesus Christ and serving Him, that's the only thing. Serving Him in whatever you do, there is eternal value. Paul says we should jump at the chance of serving, of, of being like a, like a bond slave. Mike gave us a great example this morning even in our prayer. Submit yourself as, as in service to the Lord. I've used at times, and, and I've heard many excuses for, for refusing to, to serve. I've heard the, the statement, well, I served in, I've already put my time in. I served whenever I was younger. I served when I was younger, now it's time to let the younger people serve. And honestly, I can't recall who said that to me, so um, because of that, I, can't, I, can, I can also with just the same force say this. That's, that's what a Christian kind of attitude is that. You know, I served at one point in my life, and so now it's time to let somebody else serve. <laughs> There's no verse that says you reach a serve-free age, is there? In fact, the Bible tells us the time to stop serving is when we get to heaven, and it, the Bible encourages us that the less time we know we have, the more our service should increase. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 9, 4? We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Jesus says, my time on earth is winding down, so that causes me to work with even greater zeal and greater fervor. I've heard the statement, my family has to come first. Praise God for family. Actually, the Lord comes first and family comes second. But it's possible to put your family first by teaching them how to serve in the church, isn't it? Family is important, but did you know the church is, in, is eternal? You're serving in the eternal body of Christ whenever you serve one another here. I, I don't think that God intended the strong focus in the Bible on family I don't think that that was intended to take families away from the church. I think that was intended to, to tell us to serve together. I know it's hard. 
I get it. I, I, I promise you, I get it. Now, maybe, maybe you have a, a different path that the Lord has led you in life, but I understand how hard it is to get it all done. I was talking to Tracy uh, even, the, even this afternoon. I walked in church this morning, and, 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 and I, was, I was listening to somebody come through the door just laughing and, and just filled with, with joy. And that convicted my heart because I was coming with all of the burdens and the duties and, and, and the things that had to be done and, and focusing on making sure that I, that I got the, the last... Uh, you know the last crystallization of the of the sermon that was there and was weighted down with the cares of the church and that's part of it and I just I just remembered my mind wandered back to whenever I whenever I came with with just just joy un unhindered un uninhibited and I get it started at three thirty Thursday morning and think I walked in at at nine thirty. At night, and Friday and Saturday wasn't any better. And Sunday's my day of rest, right? I mean, I understand how hard it is. But serving in the church is really where you get your energy. I've also heard the statement, there's no place to serve. That one probably um, grieves my heart more than any because... A person who, who says there's no place to serve, they, they miss the idea. We failed to shepherd them or, or they failed to understand Ephesians 4 and the idea of serving in the body of Christ. If you go over to Ephesians 4.13, um, God gives us a plan for service in the church. I equip the body. The body ministers to itself. And there you get God's plan for service is all about people, not places and in, in programs. So the person that says, I have no place to serve, what they're really saying is, is, I don't know where to plug into a program that you have in the church. I don't have a, I don't have a Sunday school class I can teach in, or, or I, don't have a, you know, I don't have a children's ministry thing to do, or I, don't, I can't be a greeter, or I can't be an usher. And while all of those things are important, serving in the church, those are a means to an end. Those are there to, to build up the body of, of, of Christ. And there's three prepositional phrases there. You need to subordinate to each other for the perfecting of the saints. It's given to put in order to prepare for additional work. The equipping of the saints. The pastors and teachers are given to prepare for additional work. For the work of the ministry. We're here prepared with the goal of serving the church body. That's the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. And there's the target. You pour out your ministry as an usher, as a Sunday school teacher, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But there's no, if there's no hole for you to plug in, you have an entire body here to, to minister to. And pastors and teachers, by preaching and teaching, praying and leading, prepare the church body to minister to, its, to itself. I wonder, do you come in on Sunday morning or on Sunday night with the idea in mind of who's hurting in the church? Who can I, who can I encourage? Who can I figure out? Who can I get close enough to? Do you pray before you come? Lord, I'm supposed to provoke other believers to love and good works. Lead me to somebody that I might be able to serve and minister to. That's the service that he's talking about here. The work that you do is people work. And the church is called to grow people. And that's the concept that 
Paul was talking about when he said equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Timberlake's an awesome church, and we talked about this on, on Wednesday night. It's, it's, it's told you a hundred times, I think it's the best fellowship in Lynchburg. Of course, I should say that, right? I think one of the things that makes it awesome is, is the people. I really do. I really mean that. I really mean that if I wasn't the pastor here, this is the church my family would be members at and be part of because of the people that are here. And while Timberlake is small enough to feel like a family, it's also large, and there's a lot of things to manage. And you know that. There's plenty of places to serve. You have the global outreach that are there. I think we have people in three different countries even right now. Multiple ministries that take place every day, seven days a week. There's something that happens. You have a Christian school of 375 to 400 kids from three years old to 12th grade. You have a, you have a seminary of people... Six people are going to be launched in May, three to the mission field and three to pastoral ministry right out of this church. You have over 100 employees, $4 million worth of budgets. Man, there's all kinds of stuff. Committees and member needs and all of those things. There's a lot that goes on. And that infrastructure is necessary. But it's easy for those programs to take all of the energy and whenever that happens and you think that that's really where the service is, you would miss the whole point. Gospel work requires that, that we focus on building people. And that's where you serve. Serving the Lord. The goal of Christian ministry is quite simple. In a sense, measurable. Are we making and maturing genuine disciples of Christ? church always tends towards institutionalism and secularism, secularization. The focus shifts to preserving traditional programs and structures, and the goal of discipleship is lost, says Colin Marshall. And our goal is not to make members of our institution, but genuine disciples of Jesus. And the way that happens is whenever we don't lag in diligence. We're fervent. Spirit, we're passionate about the Lord. And then we submit ourselves as slaves to serve other people in the body.